1: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The world is filled with many questions, such as, Do giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans? And that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world. How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna. and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery, Mystery of Everything. Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts.
0: This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much.
1: Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do.
0: Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. I'm not going into the mound for my niece and nephews, no. Go into your own mound.
1: I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McManamy.
0: And this is Ancient History Fangirl. When you think of the great cities of the pre-Columbian Americas, you probably think, at least I think, of the massive settlements of the Aztecs or the Incas, Tenochtitlan or Machu Picchu or Cusco. These cities are all in Central and South America. North America isn't exactly known for its large pre-Columbian cities, but that's mainly due to ignorance. Jen. Jen!
1: Yes, yes!
0: What if I told you that hundreds of years before European contact, the biggest city in North America was located along the Mississippi River? At its peak, perhaps 15,000 people lived there and over 30,000 in the surrounding suburbs because, yes, it did indeed have suburbs. Today, we call this place Cahokia.
1: You know, I kind of feel like the Mississippi is kind of like the Nile to me, so it it wouldn't surprise me. It actually would surprise me if people weren't living there in big, like, civilizations.
0: Well, it's not for nothing that the Mississippi was referred to as the Nile of North America. There you go. Archaeology shows that Cahokia was built quickly in just a few decades amidst great feasting and celebration, roughly around 1050 AD, 1000 to 1050 AD or so. The city thrived for centuries, but then around 1350 or 1400 AD, and yes, we are talking ADs here, The city was abandoned. Nobody knows why, and there are no written records or local folklore to tell us.
1: Roughly 200 to 300 years later, when French explorers came to the area, they encountered an indigenous people called the Cahokians, a subgroup of the Illinois or Illinois' Confederation of Peoples. The French wrongly gave their name to the ruins that were left of the great city, Cahokia. But the Cahokian people that the French encountered had come to the area centuries after the city was abandoned. They weren't related to the people who built it or originally lived there. Today, nobody, not modern archaeologists, folklorists, historians, indigenous groups descended from the inhabitants. Nobody knows what the original name of this city was. But there was a time when everybody knew its name, from the Rocky Mountains to the Gulf of Mexico. It would have been as well known as New York City is today. What was that name and why was it lost to memory? That's just one of the many mysteries of Cahokia.
0: Cahokia is located on the banks of the Mississippi River. It's directly across from the city of St. Louis today. And neither of those locations is an accident. Both St. Louis and Cahokia are located just south of where the Missouri River joins the Mississippi. And this area is known as the American Bottom. It's the American bottom, Jen. I mean,
1: (laughs) I'm not mature enough to have something called the American bottom.
0: I have the humor of a 12-year-old. Lots of 12-year-olds are more mature than me. Anyway, so that name definitely sounds dirty. But the word bottom used to be a common term for floodplain, more commonly expressed as the bottomlands. It is weird. It's historical. It's dirty. I don't know what else to tell you. It's the
1: bottom. Oh, I can. I think I understand why it's called bottom with the floodplains. Are you going to break it down for us? So when you have a flood that happens, rich, rich soil is usually deposited on the banks. Sometimes it's soil from the bottom of the river, maybe darker in color.
0: So it's like the river had
1: diarrhea all over your settlement. I'm not 100% sure of that. I'm just telling you.
0: Neither of us know that that is the origin of the American Bottom. I'm just telling you
1: what I think.
0: So the point here is that the American Bottom is a very fertile place, Jen. It's fertile. It's got huge tracts of land. It's a great place for farming, the woodlands are teeming with game and the waters with fish, and not to mention you have two gigantic rivers that are ideal for trade and travel. Rivers were like the superhighways of the ancient world. There's a reason that most large cities in historical times were built near
1: rivers. Cahokia did not spring up out of nowhere. There were people living in the American bottom for millennia before the city was built. There were many small settlements in the area, mostly villages of people who hunted, farmed, and foraged. These were part of what was known as the woodland culture. By around 700 AD, the area was becoming more populated, the small villages were growing, and that meant more farming to feed all these people. The first iteration of Cahokia, or Old Cahokia, was just a larger village typical of the woodland culture, with a population of about 2,000 people. But suddenly, around 1050 AD, the village blew up growing rapidly from a population of 2,000 to more than 10,000 people. Some archaeologists believe that the engine that powered this expansion was corn. Around this time, corn seems to have gone from being a fringe crop that was occasionally grown to being a major staple. Suddenly, everyone was farming corn in the fertile fertile American bottom. (laughs) And like,
0: there's definitely a joke here about corn. I'm just not. You know what? No, I'm just not. I'm. I'm
1: refraining. Look at my restraint. Just take a nice big gulp of wine because uh, <laughs> it's another long one. Anyway, this may have had to do with a change in climate to warmer and wetter conditions, which were more conducive to growing corn. And again, there's a joke in there. We're just. We're, we're gonna just keep going. So these th- these changes happened around 950 to 1250 A.D., which coincides perfectly with Cahokia's peak.
0: Maybe it's because there was suddenly so much corn, so much food security and prosperity, that the population around old Cahokia reached a tipping point. Maybe a single charismatic leader with a vision came along at just the right time to reorder society. We'll never know exactly how it happened, But Cahokia went through a period of growth so rapid, so dramatic, so sparkly, that archaeologists refer to it as the Big Bang of Cahokia. What had been before was leveled. Old Cahokia was torn down and a new city was built in just a few decades. A new planned city with neighborhoods zoned for different uses that completely reordered daily life for its inhabitants. The city covered an area of six square miles, and its dominating feature was over 120 giant earthen mounds, along with wide plazas, causeways, and wood henges. All of these are religious monuments. Religion dominated this landscape. At its height, archaeologists believe around 15,000 people lived in Cahokia and maybe twice that in surrounding suburbs, as I've said.
1: Cahokia was a carefully planned city, with zoning for administrative buildings, religious complexes, residential neighborhoods for the elites and for everyone else, and even suburbs, and it was all laid out in careful orientation to the four cardinal directions. The residential areas of Cahokia were clusters of small houses made of wattle and daub over a timber frame built around a single shared courtyard. New methods of home building were introduced in Cahokia that basically allowed for prefabrication. So houses could be built a lot more quickly. Can you explain what you mean by prefabrication? Are you saying like they kind of made like a cookie cutter planned like suburb like they kind of do now or like IKEA suburbs?
0: It could have been like that. I don't necessarily know that that's exactly how it was done. Houses in old Cahokia and woodland culture areas before Cahokia proper had had its big bang, the way that they were built was the builders would put these post holes into the ground and then put posts down. And then they would sort of weave the frame for the wattle and daub around these posts and fill it in with daub, which I think is like a mixture of mud and, and stuff. I'm sure that it's more complicated than that. Each one of these houses would be built bespoke by hand. What they found at Cahokia, they found like these sort of narrow trenches built into the earth and walls that had been built elsewhere could be inserted into these trenches. What archaeologists say about this is that it would have allowed for parts of the house to be assembled elsewhere and then these houses to be built much more quickly than before. That's kind of what we're looking at here. The houses themselves were made of the same materials and the same shape, same design, but the method of building allowed for a faster way to build and a way of possibly, like I said, I don't know that they did it this way, but. You could imagine groups of people kind of assembling just walls on elsewhere in a big field or something and then bringing them all together and inserting them all at once so that you have this large village area in a
1: small amount of time. That's so interesting.
0: Yeah. So despite being located near the confluence of the Mississippi and the Missouri, an ideal location for a trading hub There is no sign of a large market area in Cahokia. That's another interesting point about Cahokia that makes it kind of unique. I mean, other indigenous like Native American villages and towns had markets. It's kind of strange that there wasn't one, especially since this was located in a place that was so conducive to trading. But they did, you know, get items from all over the place and send their own items out all over the place. So we'll talk about how that worked possibly later on in the episode. Anyway, instead of a market and trade, what dominated the town was religious monuments and communal spaces. The most prominent religious monuments were the mounds. So it's important to note that mound building didn't originate in Cahokia. This was a tradition across the American Southeast and Midwest that goes all the way back to the B.C.s. The oldest mound we know of is called Watson Break, and it's in Louisiana. It dates to around 3500 B.C., so it's like... Oh, I don't know, over a thousand years older than the pyramids. There are thousands of mounds throughout the American Midwest and Southeast, some in the shapes of animals and humans, all dating to different time periods and different cultures, many of which have not been excavated. But Cahokia revolutionized mound building. They built mounds on a scale that had never been seen before, and they invented
1: a new type of mound. There were three different types of mounds at Cahokia. There were the flat-topped platform mounds, And these were built with a square, rectangular, or even circular base, tapering upward to a platform where large buildings were constructed. These were probably religious buildings or homes of important people, like chieftains or priests. Some of the largest mounds at Cahokia are platform mounds.
0: There were conical mounds. These were round-topped mounds that were mostly believed to be burial sites or markers of important landmarks. Today, they're covered in a thick layer of grass, but studies show they may have originally been covered with colored clay. So clay, the clay would have different colors, and that might have had some kind of significant meaning, but we're not sure
1: what it was. There were also ridge-topped mounds. While the conical and flat top mounds were also built by earlier cultures, the ridge mounds are only found at Cahokia. They're called ridge because of the way the mounds were constructed, with a pointed triangular top that's kind of like a roof. These were also mainly believed to be burial sites or markers of important boundaries. Next to
0: the mounds were massive plazas, many of them meticulously flattened by hand, that would have served as gathering places, gaming fields, and staging areas for religious rites and processions. Huge causeways or raised earthen roads connected major features in the Cahokian landscape all aligned along a north-south axis. And then, of course, there were the woodhenges. So woodhenges are kind of like Stonehenge, except not built of stone. They were massive circles of wooden posts built in alignment with important astronomical events like the solstice and equinoxes and things like that.
1: There are five woodhenges built at Cahokia, mostly successively in roughly the same place. They ranged in width from 240 to 476 feet in diameter, and were made of massive posts of red cedar, a wood considered sacred to many Native American cultures today. The way the wood henges were arranged, people standing at the center at the summer equinox would have seen the sun rising directly behind Monk's Mound, the largest mound in Cahokia. There were once 120 mounds in Cahokia, of which 80 still survive. We don't have time to talk about all of them. But there are a few really important ones to mention in this episode. The tallest mound, the focal point for the city, is now known as Monk's Mound. And that's 100% not what the locals called it. It was given that name by European Trappist monks who lived there centuries after the city was depopulated.
0: Anyway, so Monk's Mound was the city's most prominent structure and a central focal point for the whole city. It has a footprint of almost 14 acres, which is about as big as the footprint of the Great Pyramid of Giza, and it is roughly 10 stories tall. It's kind of a truncated pyramid with, you know, like sheared off in the middle, right, with a flat top. But the top isn't quite flat. It's got four levels of terraces, and it was built in as many as 10 separate construction phases. On top, archaeologists have found the remains of a large wooden structure that may have been a religious building or the home of a priest or chieftain. The building was 100 feet long, almost 50 feet wide, and 50 feet tall. Monk's Mound is surrounded by enormous plazas on all four sides, plazas that were built, smoothed, and constructed by hand and topped with sandy soil. The plazas were also immense public work projects. The largest one, the Grand Plaza, covers 46 acres. And remember, Grand Plaza, not what the locals called it. All the names that we talk about here in Cahokia are not what the locals called it. We don't know what anyone
1: called anything originally. So, Jenny, what were the beliefs of the Cahokians? One mysterious thing about Cahokia is that stories about it are not preserved in anyone's mythology. There are many Native peoples that are descendants of Mississippian culture, but none of them has mythology, folklore, or cultural memory about Cahokia specifically, and what happened there.
0: At least as far as we know. This is a thing that we saw repeated in a number of sources, that no mythology from any Native culture specifically talks about Cahokia, but we can't verify that. So if you happen to be from a culture with Mississippian roots, and you have some mythology you want to tell us that people don't know about, get in touch. We'd love to hear about that.
1: That would be amazing. Our next season is going to be all about women in mythology. So we want your voice on our podcast telling us some of these stories.
0: Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I have seen a little bit of a, a strain running through a lot of things that I've read, it's possible that some Native cultures do have this mythology, but they don't want to tell us because it's sacred to them. There is some tension even today between Native cultures and, you know, Native communities and academia, shall we say.
1: Yeah, and I think it's super important to remember that a lot of stuff from the Native cultures, they were taken, and some of them are in museums, and some of them are in storerooms of museums. And these are very valuable items culturally to many different people across the world. There is a really good Last Week Tonight segment about this. We'll put a link to it in the show notes that talks about what you're seeing in, in museums and the dark history of antiquities. We don't need to relitigate those points in here, but Yeah, listen to it and you'll understand where we're coming from.
0: Yeah, so um, I'm a little skeptical of the claim that there's absolutely no mythology that deals with Cahokia. Part of me is like, maybe some indigenous cultures have that. They just aren't necessarily telling people outside that community. And that's fair enough. Anyway, so there was no writing at Cahokia. What we know about the mythology and belief system today, as far as I can tell, has been triangulated from the following sources. Imagery found on artifacts discovered at the site, the archaeology of the site, its layout and structures, historical accounts from Europeans in the 1700s and 1800s, and folklore and historical information from later indigenous cultures that may have been descended from or related to the Cahokians or other cultures that shared their culture. So number three is especially problematic. These historical accounts that we're talking about are, as we said, usually from Europeans who wrote down what Native people told them about their mythology and culture.
1: So the information we're getting from these historical accounts comes from cultures living hundreds of years after the Cahokians, who may have been dealing with fractured cultural continuity due to genocide at the hands of Europeans. And it's all through a European lens, and it should be treated with serious caution. We're going to Tell you what we know, as Jenny said, we're going to triangulate this. But, you know, we've seen this before in other places across the world. When you have European people coming in, when you have colonizers coming in, Christians, a lot of times it's Christian colonizers. Sorry, that's what they did. The first thing they do is they sever all ties to the older cultures. They really try to stamp it out with their religion.
0: I'm not saying it's the same, but we kind of saw something similar to this. You know, when we were digging around in these older Celtic mythologies in Ireland, for example, all the stuff we know about Cuchulain comes from a Christian monk lens that was dealing with these oral traditions that were hundreds and hundreds of years older than when they were written down. And they were coming through a lens of time, a lens of possibly genocidal severing of cultural continuity, and also a lens of Christianity.
1: For anyone who grew up Christian like I did, you'll take an English class and People point out all the metaphors and knowing the Christian faith means you see a lot of them in different things, particularly like in the Hound of Ulster or other places. And that's because the people who were writing down these stories had a real agenda to push forward their faith. We know that the Celtic stories would not potentially have looked exactly like that. They might have been told the same way, but there's a real demonization on things like the Green Knight, who is a pagan, a pagan construct on Morgan Le Fay, on lots of different characters who are perceived to go against Christian values. I mean, Lancelot and Guinevere, right? They're kind of the villains. And that's because those stories were written down a lot later by people with a real agenda.
0: We're not trying to draw a comparison that says they're the same, but, like, we've just seen something similar
1: before based on our own work in that area. We're talking a genocide that's also built on religion. Once you get sort of the Christian religion coming in, they are all about converting and changing people to their beliefs and demonizing and victimizing people who don't follow those beliefs. We see see it across the colonization spectrum.
0: Okay, so we've basically told you... Back to Cahokia, that we're triangulating a lot of what we know about Cahokia today from various sources, some of which are problematic. I mean, all of which are problematic. Even if you're just looking at just straight archaeology, what's in the ground, we still have to interpret that. And, you know, the most knowledgeable archaeologist in the world still has their own lenses and biases. All of this is problematic to some degree. That being said, we do have some information about the beliefs of the Cahokians. One thing that we think we know is that the sun was important to their religious beliefs, and it seemed particularly associated with the ruling chieftain or ruling family. You can tell this because of the alignment of the woodhenches, including how you could see the sun at the summer equinox rising from the chieftain's house on the top of Monk's Mound. There's also the Birdman figure, sometimes called the Thunderbird. This was a mythological warrior figure with a beak nose associated with falcons, war, and dynastic succession. There have been several examples of Birdman artwork dug up at Cahokia, including a famous tablet found at Monk's Mound. There have been depictions of costumed dancers wearing Birdman costumes that include long, ground-sweeping feathered wings and a beaked mask. You could just imagine somebody dancing with this incredible costume with these wings that swept the ground and this beaked mask, and it would have been really dramatic and very striking. Later mythology about a warrior hero called Red Horn, or more colorfully, I love this, he who wears human heads as earrings, <laughs> is believed to have evolved from Birdman mythology. Redhorn is a folk hero who appears in the mythology of native cultures living in the Great Plains and Mississippi Valley, including the Iowa and Ho-Chunk peoples. Figures with long beak noses and human-headed earrings have also been found at Cahokia, visually connecting the two figures. There's a famous tablet of the Birdman that was found, as we said, at Monk's Mound, with this sort of long-beaked, I think it's a mask, and earrings that could be human heads. I mean, I don't know. I'll put an <laughs> image in the show notes and you can judge for
1: yourself. It's dark. That's how we know Jenny's picked this topic. She always goes for the human heads. There are also female figurines made of flint and clay, strongly associated with crops and agriculture. In some examples, the crops seem to be growing from the women's bodies. These are probably fertility symbols and may have been precursors to the corn mother, an agricultural fertility goddess who's prominent in Native American religions and mythologies even today, especially among the Cherokee culture in the southeast. And when Jenny told me about this, we were texting um, and I literally jumped up and down and I was like, corn mother, I know her because she's in our book, Women of Myth, which will be out in February. I wrote the entry. And I find her fascinating.
0: The corn mother connection, I have not seen anywhere anything written about this saying that these figurines are specifically definitely corn mother figures. But I just saw such a clear resemblance that I couldn't leave that out. You know, it's so exciting, especially when you think about how corn may have been the driving engine of development at Cahokia. That was their main crop. Cahokia exploded because all of a sudden the climate changed and became more conducive to growing corn. So it would have been super important to them. So it does make sense that they would worship corn in the form of this figure.
1: Absolutely.
0: So we've given you a sense of the layout of the city, a quick sketch of some symbolism and iconography that seems to have been important to their beliefs. Now let's get back to the history of Cahokia. Cahokia burst into life like a supernova around 1000 to 1050 AD, rising to prominence in just a few short decades. It was a massively powerful cultural vortex, both drawing people in and projecting its culture out into the wider world. The impact it would have on the surrounding region cannot be overstated. Cahokia is believed to have been the epicenter of what's called today Mississippian culture. Sometimes it's referred to as the Southeastern Ceremonial Complex. This culture began in Cahokia and rapidly spread. Its influence can be found 700 miles south in Louisiana, 400 miles north in Wisconsin, 500 miles southwest in Oklahoma, and 700 miles southeast in Georgia. Everyone wanted to emulate the culture of Cahokia.
1: So what was Mississippian culture like? The religion was centered around the sun and included Birdman and maybe Cornmother iconography. It also included large-scale mound building. In addition to that, it was characterized by strongly stratified societies, a big gap between the elites and everyone else, large-scale agriculture, especially corn farming, the distinctive wall-trench houses that allow for prefabrication, and massive trade networks.
0: Because Cahokia had a massive trade network, artifacts and plant remains from Cahokia show that they were trading with communities as far-flung as the Rocky Mountains, the Great Lakes, the Gulf of Mexico, and the eastern seaboard. Although trade may be a misnomer here, at least trade as we know it through a modern, mostly European lens. The Cahokians didn't have money, and it appears they also didn't have a market. Even so, Cahokian artifacts such as distinctive, highly prized, incised pottery can be found hundreds and hundreds of miles away. It's possible That another type of economy was operating here, a gift or barter economy, where people came from hundreds of miles away to attend festivals and events at Cahokia and were given gifts of Cahokian items in exchange for influence, or bartered for them in exchange for their own coveted artifacts and materials. We don't know.
1: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra.
0: It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.
1: Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps... You're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlewood, history harlot and reader of books, on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, my friends. Bye bye. I'll be seeing you.
0: So what brought people to Cahokia? Cahokia was, as we've said, a really influential city whose culture everybody wanted to emulate. It both exported its own culture and drew people in. People came from all over the American Southeast and Midwest, both to live at Cahokia and to experience the incredible large-scale festivals and religious events that happened there. At its height, Cahokia was a diverse city, And it's likely you could hear dozens of indigenous languages spoken there. There's no question that between 1050 and 1250 AD,
1: Cahokia was the place to be. It's clear from the archaeology that Cahokia rearranged social ties in its area. Remember, before Cahokia, the area next to the Mississippi was populated by small villages, mainly characterized by small clusters of houses surrounding a communal courtyard. There were also communal buildings in these villages, and people in the villages tended to store their food communally. These villages have been described as insular. Power and influence was not centralized. People mainly handled their own affairs within their villages without trying to influence others, politically or culturally. Allegiance and identity mainly existed along horizontal lines, between roughly equal kin groups. There wasn't a big gap between elites and everyone else.
0: But Cahokia changed all that profoundly. According to an article titled Cahokia, Urbanization, Metabolism, and Collapse, researcher Joseph A. Tainter, (laughs) It's just the American bottom, (laughs) the corn.
1: And Tainter. Yep.
0: We're so mature. Anyway, so researcher Joseph A. Tainter says that residential areas in Cahokia were still characterized by small clusters of houses around central courtyards, showing that at least on its surface, the kin groups survived. But people stopped storing food in communal buildings. They started storing food in their individual houses. This suggests that on some level, the ancient horizontal kin group allegiances here were breaking down. What Cahokia did, with its massive plazas and mounds, its flashy ceremonies, its chieftain with a house that the sun literally rose from at the summer equinox, was to bring people into a much larger shared identity within a more stratified social hierarchy. People willing to follow a leader here. Tainter goes on to say, "...whether or not this transformation was engineered by the elites, it was greatly to their advantage. By breaking traditional horizontal ties, the elites both eliminated alternative dimensions of organization and created a vacuum in social relations that was filled by reordering society along vertical lines. Hereafter, isolated homesteads owed their primary allegiance less to their peers and more to often distant elites." So it's almost like he's saying that the social stratification at Cahokia broke down ties between kin groups and filled that void with a larger allegiance to the wider city and its elites. It's
1: real dark. It's a dark interpretation. It's just real dark, right? It's like, oh, let's take it away from being sort of a community and being about, like, allegiance to your family and instead make it about allegiance to the elite. I question that in some regards because that... Feels really European to me. It feels sort of like something we see in a feudal serfdom society.
0: It's an example of we might be interpreting things with a certain lens, looking at what's in the ground. But also, you know, there's stuff like, well, they weren't storing their food communally anymore. And the way that the city was organized with all of these, like, just incredibly dominant uh, religious structures, they were all kind of geared towards everyone in the city having a communal experience that would connect them to each other as opposed to just their kin group. So it's kind of built to do that.
1: Um, They're also, what I see, having done the research into Carfi and the Minoan people a little bit, is I see a little bit of palace economy here. But again... I don't know if that's a lens that I'm seeing because I've done research into it or not.
0: There's some similarities to a palace economy, right? They also did this in Minoan culture. You know, when you see the transition from these really ancient mountain sanctuaries to these larger communities and religious centers down by the coast, like they're reorganizing society from small horizontal kinship lines to a larger, more stratified society that's all centered around, you know, a central palace or sometimes it's a a central temple or a central city, something like that. Palace economies have existed all over the world. I believe the Incas were essentially a palace economy. The Minoans definitely were. I believe the Egyptians were at certain points. This happened all over the world. One thing that isn't like a palace economy is, as far as I know, You're not seeing these vast storerooms like you see at Knossos. That being said, there were these really big communal feasts, and that's where all that food might have gone. It might just be that this was a palace economy, which would usually collect food and goods and resources from the people and then push those out into the wider world. It's hard to say that that's what was happening here.
1: Yeah, because our next paragraph we're going to read to you about Heiner's theory kind of says the opposite. So... Without a doubt, Cahokia drew people in who wanted to be at the center of the action. But there are hints that not everyone moved to Cahokia by choice. Tainter goes on to say, quote, There is no evidence that Cahokia provided any material resources or services to the countryside. To the contrary, the flow of resources went from countryside to Cahokia. It appears, therefore, that Cahokia was an elite construct, created solely to aggregate and control the rural population and its resources. Again, that sounds palace economy. It also sounds like a castle economy, right? That everything goes into the person who's in charge and then they redistribute it.
0: The thing is, he's saying it didn't get redistributed. I would say it did in the form of feasts. And we'll talk about feasts in a bit.
1: That's exactly what I was going to say. It does get redistributed, but it gets redistributed in the form of religious feasts. And again, that's what makes me think of sort of the Christian lens, right? Because you can see that in sort of a medieval society where like that stuff is redistributed during big feasts. Bear in mind, that might be a lens that's unconsciously here by the person we're quoting from. So, it does appear that as the metropolis of Cahokia grew, the surrounding countryside emptied out. One theory is that the elites of Cahokia exerted control on the rural people to provide food and material goods to support the population in the city. And that this was grueling work. Only by moving into the city itself could rural people experience the benefits of that, such as the massive feasts that went along with communal events and religious ceremonies. So a
0: certain amount of coercion may have had something to do with the growth of Cahokia, but that's probably not the whole picture. The huge earthworks at Cahokia and everything else about the town would have been built by hand in a huge communal effort. To construct these earthworks, thousands of workers would have had to haul over 55 million cubic feet of dirt in woven baskets over several decades. It's not clear whether there were enslaved people at Cahokia, but archaeologists today mostly don't believe that the massive mounds were built via slave labor. As we saw at Kableke Tepe, building projects such as these can serve to bring people together in a shared purpose. After the building is done, large religious events and festivals continue to bring people together, unite them, and keep them under that stratified hierarchy. While there needs to be a certain respect for authority, somebody needs to be directing all that effort, slavery isn't required to get it done. What's required is a shared belief system, with everyone committed to the same religious purpose. Absolutely.
1: I would say, in addition to being committed to a shared religious purpose... There has to be something people are getting out of all of this grueling work, and that's going to be the feast. So while I don't think it's necessarily slavery involved, I do think that there is a trade-off, not just the glory of building for their religion. It also requires epic feasts. Just as at Goblaque Tepe, there's evidence of massive feasts at Cahokia, which we'll get to in a minute. First, Jenny is desperate for me to tell you about the sports at Cahokia.
0: Sports culture was a big deal at Cahokia. There were epic feasts, there were religious events, but it wasn't all just religious events. You know, like there were also secular things that drew people together and made it fun. It wasn't just all hauling earth everywhere. It was
1: fun. This was a fun place to be. So Cahokia wasn't just about the hard work or the exploiting of the masses or whatever. Cahokia was about the fun. And one of its traditions was both fun and served the purpose of aligning the group identities of people from small insular villages into a larger, more stratified whole. We're talking, of course, about Chunky. Chunky is the best name. So, Chunky is a game of aim and skill. It's still played by many Native American cultures today. In Chunky, a large stone disk is rolled across a perfectly flat field, Players hurl spears in the spot where they think the stone will stop rolling. Whoever gets their spear closest gets a point.
0: That's basically how it works. I mean, there's different details about the rules for Chunky in different communities, and it's not clear exactly what the specifics were in Cahokia beyond the general picture. But whatever those rules were, it is possible that the Cahokians may have invented Chunky. It was a game designed to be played on the enormous plazas in their city, Hand built by the residents and pounded relentlessly flat over forty-six acres. Good Lord, to provide a flawless playing surface. It's like if you know the crowd at Yankee Stadium or something was also involved in pounding the ground flat to make the playing field.
1: You know, if the crowd was involved in taking care of the football pit of the World Cup, you know, it was their job to get out there, pound it all, and then they got to watch the the game or be a part of it.
0: So the biggest plaza in Cahokia, the grand plaza in front of Monk's Mound, all European names, I'm sorry, was originally a chunky playing field. That land was originally undulating, and people had to cut and smooth it by hand, meticulously flattening the earth. It would have been as big a project as building the mound itself. It's clear that the people of Cahokia were really committed to chunky, maybe as much as they were to their religion.
1: Chunky? can be a rather high-stakes game. In some cultures, it's historically been a way for opposing sides to work out their conflicts without going to war. There are historical accounts of people making very high-stakes bets on games of Chunky and taking their own lives when they lost. So Chunky was one fun way, according to Jenny Williamson, that Cahokia drew people into its orbit.
0: People are really invested in it, Jen.
1: I mean, those high stakes are real high stakes, man. I mean, people get invested in soccer and football. And Eurovision. Anyway. So Chunky was one fun way Cahokia drew people into its orbit. But nothing brought people to Cahokia like the epic feasts. This was a huge benefit of living in the city and being involved in the construction of huge monuments. Huge! Sorry. Huge, massive. Massive loads in the American's fertile bottom. (laughs) Massive
0: loads. Corn! Corn everywhere. It's an explosion of corn. Tainter! Oh my god.
1: (laughs) We are historians. We are not putting this in the episode. I can't guarantee that. Oh no, I'm putting my quality control foot down. So these epic hallucinogenic feasts were probably what made the cultural maelstrom so irresistible for hundreds of miles in every direction. Like we talk nonsense and then I read a sentence like that and it's like, this is why we have no USP. We're weirdos. We, we do have a USP. Weirdos? Massive loads in the American
0: bottom. <laughs> That's our USP. Oh, and also trite and shallow. I
1: almost spit one onto my microphone that still has probably ketchup on it.
0: No, I know you're flinging your food around
1: the room. Because you were texting me and I was like, how do I respond? I can't respond. I don't want to pick up the phone right now. I can't do this.
0: <laughs> anyway, borrow pits were big pits or trenches at Cahokia that were dug out to get the earth to build huge mounds and fill in the giant communal plazas around them. So to get all that earth that you need, they dug these big trenches, basically. Under one of the mounds, Mound 51, there's a borrow pit roughly 183 feet long, 62 feet wide, and 10 feet deep. It was here that the Cahokians threw out waste produced by centuries of epic feasts. There were as many as ten distinct layers of waste in this pit. In just one layer, archaeologists found the bones of 3,900 deer, 7,900 broken pots, and leftovers from hearty soups and stews that included squash, pumpkins, berries and nuts, cornmeal, and animal bones. There were also over a million burned seeds of tobacco, probably from the smoking of sacred pipes. These pits were packed so tightly that when archaeologists unearthed them, the waste inside still stank, like it was freshly buried and just starting to rot. So one thing to note here is that tobacco smoking was and still is part of sacred ceremonies. This indicates that these feasts probably took place at religious events.
1: Sacred pipe smoking was one way people had a mind-altering experience at these religious festivals. But it wasn't the only way archaeologists have also found the remains of dried roasted leaves from the yaupin holly tree whose latin name is appropriately ilex vomitoria (laughs) these leaves were used to make what europeans called the black drink it was a traditional part of native american cultures throughout the southeast possibly as far back as the hundreds bc the black drink was heavily caffeinated it was roughly six times stronger than coffee. Its primary ingredient was roasted leaves from the Yaupin and Holly tree. But this drink was made in many different ways across the Midwest and Southeast, depending on the other ingredients. It also may have induced psychotropic and euphoric effects. It also made you vomit. The black drink was traditionally used as part of purging rituals to prepare people for battle and important religious ceremonies. And it's still used today in some communities. There are recipes online for making the black drink. But some Native American groups have cautioned against trying them as they leave out important steps. And if you make it wrong, you could wind up poisoning yourself.
0: Don't make the black drink. Resist the temptation. Unless you actually know what you're doing, obviously. It's like flying ointment. You know, maybe it's fun to read about, but uh, we do not encourage you actually trying to do this. Anyway. Evidence has been found of widespread consumption of the black drink at Cahokia. In fact, people drank it from special cups made just for that purpose. They had these kind of like small pots with a handle on one side and a small lip on the other side. They're made of unfired clay and decorated with patterns that represent water, the underworld, and maybe the whelk shells that earlier cultures used to consume this drink from. So there was this older tradition that went way back further than Cahokia of drinking the black drink from these special whelk shells. And these were incised on to these clay pots as sort of a callback to an older tradition that were found at Cahokia with this residue from the Yalpon Holly tree on it, showing that these were special cups for the black drink at Cahokia, which is kind of cool.
1: Yeah, like souvenir cups, right? Yeah, kind of like that. I would have one every year.
0: Right, a different one every year, maybe. I don't know. Or maybe it's the same one every year. I'm not sure. So just to paint you a wider picture, Jen, close your eyes. Imagine it with me at Cahokia. Close your eyes. Cahokia held citywide feasts, enough to feed everyone in the biggest city in North America. People were eating until they burst, smoking sacred pipes at ceremonies, passing around special cups of hallucinatory, buzz-inducing tea, joining the whole city and cheering and betting on high-stakes games of chunky, and attending religious events that swept them all away in an all-consuming communal and religious experience. Almost like Burning Man if Burning Man involved human sacrifice. Because there was a dark side to these celebrations.
1: I mean, isn't Burning Man about burning a giant like Wicker Man, which may go back to human sacrifice?
0: Burning Man absolutely calls back to human sacrifice. Yeah. (laughs) So, I'm gonna take a little uh, trip into mythology here. I know Jen loves mythology.
1: Oh, please lay it on me. That sweet, sweet mythological burn. That's my favorite <laughs> kind of burn.
0: <laughs> I don't know if this burns or not, but it's about Redhorn. So I'm going to share this myth with you because much like Cahokia itself, it's super fun and also human sacrifice. Redhorn, like we said, he was this mythological character in a lot of native cultures that may have evolved from this Birdman character that appears first at Cahokia. I believe it's first. And he has a whole cycle of mythology now, kind of like the Arthurian cycle or the Mabinogion of Wales, or the Iliad, I guess. Or the Ulster cycle. Yeah, exactly. This myth that I'm going to share with you comes to us from the Ho-Chunk people who have roots in Mississippian culture. Historically, their territory spans parts of Iowa, Illinois, Minnesota, and Wisconsin.
1: The story starts with some villagers who were being bullied and victimized by giants, as giants are wont to do. Giants are assholes. (laughs) It seems to be something we see over and over again. So, these villagers went out looking for help and wound up asking for help from Turtle, a friend of Redhorn's, who's kind of a trickster figure who also tends to mess everything up. Turtle got together a war party to help them, but in true Turtle fashion, he screwed it all up and the villagers wound up getting beaten by the giants again. So the villagers went back to Turtle's village looking for someone with slightly more competence this time. And this time, Redhorn himself decided to take up their cause.
0: Now it turned out that the giants were absolutely obsessive ball players. The game they were playing may have been chunky related. I've seen some write-ups that kind of associate it with Chunky. Redhorn and his friends challenged the Giants to a game with their lives staked on the outcome. The losers would be put to death. So it was, at least it was high stakes. So the best player on the Giants team was a giantess with red hair. Just like Redhorn's hair. They had red hair together. Love it. She and Redhorn were pitted against each other in this game, but when it was her turn, Redhorn's human head earrings stuck out their tongues and made faces at her, and she cracked up laughing and messed up. I just think that
1: is the best. (laughs) That is the best meat cute? Like... They had a meat cute. Redhorn and his friends won the game, but they decided to spare the giant's lives because he and this gorgeous red-haired giantess kind of liked each other.
0: They had this meat cute. They wanted to see where it went.
1: Yeah, those severed heads were winking. Even the severed heads were on board. But then the Giants challenged Redhorn and his friends to various other competitions, ending in a wrestling match, which, you know, being Giants, the Giants won. Because the Giants won that match, Redhorn and his friends were put to death. And so were all the people in the village. It just takes a dark turn. So dark. Eventually, Redhorn's sons, one of whom, best detail ever, had severed heads for nipples. As one does. That is a way to accessorize your nipples. He wound up bringing Redhorn and his friends back to life. So I bring this story up because you can see some connections
0: to Cahokia. This is from the Ho-Chunk people. They are descendants of Mississippian culture that was influenced by Cahokia. And you see some similarities here, right? First off, Redhorn is a birdman figure. The story features a very intense, very high-stakes game reminiscent of Chunky, and finally, as fun as it is, this story ends in human sacrifice on a rather large scale. Were the losers of Chunky games at Cahokia actually sacrificed? I don't know the answer to that. There are cultures where high-stakes ball games did seem to end in human sacrifice, specifically among the Aztecs and other Mesoamerican cultures, but historians don't believe that the Mississippian culture was influenced by Mesoamerican cultures, so we really can't say that it's the same thing here. However, it is clear that human sacrifice did take place at Cahokia, and just as in the Redhorn story, the lives of many villagers could hang on the death of one important person.
1: And... This brings us to perhaps the most infamous monument at Cahokia, the deceptively, boringly named Mound 72. Mound 72, super boring name, is on the southern end of the town, about 2,700 feet south of Monk's Mound, and it is very unassuming, barely more than 10 feet tall. You could walk right by it and not notice it. In 1967, the mound caught the attention of archaeologist Melvin Fowler, who noticed that its alignment was off. Unlike all the other monuments in Cahokia, which were aligned on a north south axis, Mound 72 was aligned with the equinoxes, so along an east west axis. However, it was also carefully aligned with Monk's Mound. A line drawn through the center of Monk's Mound would also pass directly through Mound 72. That had to mean it was important. And Fowler predicted that there would be a posthole at the mound aligned with a line from the center of Monk's Mound.
0: There was no real line, it's just a, a line drawn on a map.
1: Yeah, like a longitude or latitude line, right?
0: Yeah. So it turned out there was a posthole where Melvin Fowler said there would be. It was part of the remains of an ancient woodhenge, one that predated Cahokia itself. That woodhenge had been torn down when Cahokia was built. And then Mound 72 was built where the northern curve of the Woodhenge had been, in careful alignment with the equinoxes. The mound was built over an elite grave that dates to around 950 A.D. So this grave, like at least the, you know, the oldest bodies in this grave predate Cahokia. This elite grave dates to around 950 A.D. This is, I believe, the oldest grave in the mound. It contains at least 12 people, men and women, centered around a very important high-status couple who were laid to rest together. The woman lay face down, with the man face up on top of her, both lying atop a gorgeous beaded blanket made of shell beads from the Gulf of Mexico, crafted in the shape of a falcon, with a beaked head and draping wings. It's a birdman beaded blanket.
1: Other people in the grave include a child between the ages of three and six, lying alongside the body of another woman, a bundle of disarticulated bones that was actually a mixture of bones... From both a male and a female body and four male skeletons two were laid flat on their backs one was a disarticulated bundle of bones and one was laid face down with one leg bent up toward its chest initially archaeologists believed there was only one skeleton on the bird blanket and it was a man they also believed the other bones in the grave were men it turns out they were couples, some of them buried together in disarticulated bone bags, some even with kids.
0: This suggests that women and men both held high-status positions in Cahokia, and that this wasn't just a straight-up warrior patriarchy as was previously assumed. It's not clear what gender relations were like in Cahokia, But it's possible women could hold important status. It's clear that the people in these burials had intimate relationships with each other, and perhaps that power was intimately tied to those relationships. Also in this elite grave were numerous ceramics, beads, chunky stones, jewelry, and other artifacts that came from as far away as Tennessee and Oklahoma. It's one of the most elaborate, wealthy burials ever found in North America, possibly one of the most important graves we've ever found. As incredible as this burial is, though, it's not the infamous part. Jen, tell us about the infamous part.
1: (laughs) Oh, I'm going to tell you more. Near the beaded burial lay a row of four headless men laid to rest on a platform, with their arms linked and their hands and heads removed. Near them lay a mass grave of 53 young people, mostly women, Their bodies laid neatly side by side in two layers on woven mats. They ranged in age from young teens to early twenties, and they had all been buried at the same time as the beaded burial. And that was just the start. Underneath Mound 72 were several other high-status graves, meticulously arranged over pits of mass graves, usually, although not always, of women. There were also a few individual burials, some of them whole, others disarticulated bones that had been laid in a charnel house first for the flesh to rot away. These may have been high-status family members and individuals as well.
0: Do you know what a charnel house is, Jen? No.
1: Can you educate me on this?
0: Different cultures have them. It's not just limited to Cahokia. It's like a, a structure where people lay out the bodies of their dead so that either the flesh will rot away or sometimes this is associated with sky burials where vultures will eat the flesh until there's mostly just bones left and then the bones are buried. It's a like a burial practice. So what archaeologists think may have been happening with these charnel house bones is that sometimes family members who were not like the most important person in a high status family, but fairly important, would be laid to rest in these charnel houses. And then when somebody really important died, like a chieftain, then their family members in the charnel houses would be buried with them.
1: So can I ask a question? These bodies of these girls, are they from the charnel house or are they something different? You mean the mass grave? The mass grave. Are they from the Charnel House or are they from something different?
0: They are not from the Charnel House. What archaeologists think is that they were killed at the same time as the burial. In all, there were 270 bodies under that mound, Mound 72, mostly in five mass graves. Some in smaller group burials are buried individually. What seems to have been happening was that when a high-status person died, a lot of people, mostly women... But possibly also servants and kin of both sexes went into the mound with them. It's pretty clear that these were sacrifice victims. I don't think there's much question about what they were. But we're aware of how using stories about human sacrifice to demonize cultures that have been oppressed by other cultures. Like that's a thing that the Romans did. That's a thing Europeans did. Like, we're aware of that happening, but we're also not We're not bringing these stories up to demonize the people of Cahokia because human sacrifice is a very widespread practice that was done throughout the centuries by a lot of cultures. Definitely Europeans did it. The Romans and Greeks did it.
1: Definitely the Romans. I mean, we have told you so many stories about ancient Rome, wherein they have gladiatorial games and they are just sacrifices. They'll say at the beginning, the people who die here are in honor of Saturn or whoever.
0: And that arose from funeral games, you know? So it's kind of like also this happened when an important person died.
1: Yeah, or to commemorate an important person, their victory, any number of things. The Romans just had really good spin and wrote it all down. I'm giving you that example because we've spent so much time in Greece and Rome and you know those stories. But this is everywhere. It's widespread.
0: We're aware of the baggage surrounding talking about human sacrifice here. So we we just want to make it very clear that the Cahokians, archaeologically, it does seem that they did this, but a lot of cultures did do this, that we're not singling them out. And also, Europeans came in and committed genocide. Sometimes it was religiously motivated. So I don't know. I mean, was that a form of human sacrifice too? Was it better? (laughs) Like... I don't think so. The European, Christian, and Roman colonizers, they also did similar things. They just called it something different.
1: Yeah. And I think, like, again, shouting out to another very good podcast. Behind the Bastards has a really good, I think it's like a two or four parter on Christopher Columbus. It talks about why he's the worst, what he wanted to do, genocide, and religious conquest.
0: Yeah. A lot has been written about the graves under Mound 72, some of it contradictory. I'll try to parse through it using the most recent research I can find. So, the five mass burials in Mound 72 appear to mostly have happened between the 1000s and 1100s AD. Four out of five of the graves contain mostly women, largely between their teens and 20s. A lot has been written speculating that they must have been sacrificial virgins or that they were chosen for their beauty— I suspect a Christian lens here, none of that can possibly be known. We don't know. What's clear is that they don't exhibit signs of violence on the bones, so they must have been killed a way that doesn't leave a mark like that. Researchers believe that they may have been killed by strangulation.
1: So, it used to be that archaeologists believed there were only women in these mass graves, but more recent evidence suggests that around 20% of the skeletons were biologically male. And we've seen conflicting studies about who these sacrifice victims were and where they came from. However, the most recent research we've seen suggests that even though Cahokia was a land of plenty, the people in the mass graves suffered from hunger and privation. They were not living in good conditions. This suggests that they may have been of a lower class, perhaps even enslaved.
0: That's one theory. Some researchers have suggested that they were members of rural communities controlled by Cahokia, and these sacrifices were one way Cahokia maintained control over other nearby rural villages. The villages would have had to be nearby, however, because the latest research suggests these people were locals, not war captives or slaves who came from far away. They weren't foreign tribute. They were people who'd grown up in or around Cahokia. So that brings us to the fifth mass grave. The fifth mass grave is different than the other four. This one is the most recent. These people went into the ground around 1150 AD, about 150 years after the earliest one. This may have been the last time anyone was buried
1: in the mound. This grave contains about 40 women, men, and children. These bodies show unmistakable signs of violence. The skeletons were clubbed in the head, decapitated or partially decapitated, shot with arrows, and horrifically beaten. Some have severe bone fractures, including broken jaws. These injuries happened right before death. Evidence suggests it could have taken place at the rim of the pit, and then the bodies were pushed in. Some people were still alive when they went into the grave. A thousand years later, their finger bones were found digging into the soil beneath them.
0: These victims are also thought to be local to Cahokia, but I've seen some articles that suggest they're genetically different from most of the residents. It's possible these people were a persecuted minority group that had been living in Cahokia, or possibly a rebelling group from the surrounding region. It's more likely they were human sacrifices at the death of a high-status person, however, as laid on top of them were the burials of 15 high-status individuals neatly laid on litters made of cane matting and cedar poles. So... That brings us to the account of somebody named Lepage Dupratz. And as you can guess from that name, that dude's a white
1: French guy. (laughs)
0: He's a white French guy, strap in. (laughs) He's got real feels embedded in Catholicism. (laughs) Oh, he does. So what was going on in this city? What was it like to live there with these wild feasts, intense festivals, and large-scale human sacrifice happening? There's the chunky games, there's the hallucinatory drinks, there's the shared communal activity, and then there's some real dark hints, right? Stuff like how the how the houses were laid out and, like, the fact that the food storage was not communal anymore, it was individual. I don't know why I think that's dark, but I do.
1: You know what? I'll tell you why you think the house stuff is real dark. It's your house could be put up and torn down just as quickly. You could fall from that grace just as quickly as you rose to it.
0: It seems like the, you know, there was a real class divide here, too. Lepage Dupratz's account, which we're going to get into, really sheds some light on it, but it is very problematic. So we're going to talk about that. And it delves into the status and the human sacrifice and how the status and the human sacrifice were linked. So his account suggests that when a high-status person died in Cahokia, terror gripped everyone at all levels of society. Anyone could and would go into the mound.
1: So we don't have accounts from Native American cultures about specifically what happened at Cahokia, but the Mississippian culture itself extended far outside of Cahokia. And there are many peoples, including the Osage, the Natchez, the Chickasaw, Peoria, and many others who are descendants of that culture. Myths and legends are an important way that pre-modern cultures without writing preserved and transmitted their cultural memories. But as influential as Cahokia was, there are no known Native American legends that mention it or that talk about what happened in the city. We get intriguing hints and glimpses, but nothing definitive as far as we know. That is a product of colonization and particularly Christian colonization.
0: Possibly. I've also seen the suggestion that sometimes people don't preserve memories about a certain place because something bad happened there and they just rather move on and forget about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Many peoples that still exist today, as we've said, arose from the Mississippian tradition. But archaeology suggests that the cultures that were Mississippian that had this stratified society and mound-building tradition and everything, they had mostly changed into newer cultures with newer practices at some point prior to European contact. The old ways of Cahokia faded out fairly quickly, it seems, after Cahokia itself did. That's true of most Mississippian cultures, but there was one that was still practicing the old ways by the 1700s, and that was the Natchez. So the Natchez people are still with us today. There are almost 200,000 Natchez people, and membership in the community is determined based on maternal lineage. The Natchez are notable for being the only Mississippian culture who maintained those cultural practices for a period after colonization by Europeans. This account by Lepage Dupratz, I'm not necessarily saying this is like 100% true and accurate account of what the Natchez were like. I'm not sure how Natchez people feel about this account. This is what he said, and the reason I'm sharing it here isn't necessarily to shed light on the Natchez, and we'll talk about why it's problematic, but it's there to shed some light on Cahokia, and you can see some similarities. But again, it is problematic, so take it all with a grain of salt. So, there's a detailed account of Natchez burial practices that, like we said— may shed some light on the Cahokian tradition of sacrifice at the burial of an important person. And it is written by a white guy, Antoine-Simon Lepage Dupratz. He was a French ethnographer and historian who lived in the early days of the colony of Louisiana from 1718 to 1734. He traveled in this area long before Lewis and Clark. In fact, when Lewis and Clark embarked on their own expedition, they brought Lepage's book along as a guide.
1: Lepage was operating in Louisiana back in the early days of the colony, more than 60 years before the Louisiana Purchase. He wrote about befriending the Natchez people there, becoming close friends with the local leaders, and what happened when a high-status person died in this culture. He was, apparently, an eyewitness. As we've said, Several times. This account should be taken with a huge grain of salt or a sphinx of salt.
0: Grain of salt the size of the sphinx. Yes.
1: And we hesitated to include it at first. And there are a few reasons why you need this sphinx-sized salt lick.
0: First off, it's about the Natchez culture, not the culture that originally lived at
1: Cahokia. The people in question were in Louisiana, about 600 miles south of Cahokia.
0: And this all took place 300 years after Cahokia was abandoned. So this is about a different group of people, far from the Cahokians in space and time, but that is not the most important point against this account. The fourth point is that it's through a European lens. Lepage Dupratz, apparently, according to him, befriended the Natchez local leaders learned their language, and became close to their ruling family, but he was still a European, and that lens is inescapable. And probably at this point in time,
1: a Christian.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely Christian, yeah.
1: And I hate, like, harping on this as someone who grew up Catholic, but it it does actually center how you see things. Absolutely. So Lepage lived in the Natchez area from 1720 to 1728, moving there, as we've said, as a colonizer. According to the accounts we found, which are again accounts of white people, the Natchez and French lived side by side peacefully during this time, trading and sometimes intermarrying. And it wasn't weird that Lepage was friends with them because that is the rosy picture that the colonizers wanted to believe. The truth is that as the French colony continued to grow and encroach on Natchez land, tensions escalated. In 1729, the Natchez revolted and the French responded by crushing the rebellion, taking hundreds of Natchez people into slavery and sending them to the Caribbean to work on the sugarcane plantations. This was basically a death sentence. Some fled and took refuge amongst other local peoples, including the Creek, the Chickasaw, and Cherokee, and many Natchez still live in those territories today.
0: So that is the background, and before I tell you this account... I felt it was important that you know that. There are lots of reasons not to trust the European lens or to see this as aligned with what went on at Cahokia or even what went on among the Natchez. But I'm including it anyway because the similarities between what was going on in this account and the evidence in the ground at Cahokia is pretty striking and it does fill in some gaps for us. This account may give us a glimpse, albeit a flawed one, about what it was like when a high-ranking person died in Cahokia and what happened in this community.
1: So, the Natchez had a matrilineal society, where the most high-status chieftain, called the Great Son, derived his right to rule from his mother, whose title was the female son. Her daughter, the Great Son's sister, would be the one to give birth to the next ruler.
0: This is all according to Lepage Dupratz.
1: Yes, and really fascinating that, like, the sister gives birth to the next ruler. Just really fascinating.
0: Yeah, and you can see this in the ground that women were high status. You know, like you look at the Birdman bead burial, men and women as couples, like there were these high status couples.
1: Was it the woman on top and the man on the bottom or the reverse?
0: I think it was the reverse, but they were just, you know, a lot of couples were buried in that grave.
1: Yeah. So the great son's brother had a title too, Stung Serpent, sometimes translated as Tattooed Serpent. Stung Serpent was the second most important chieftain, and he had an important political and familial role as well.
0: The year was 1725, and at this point the Natchez Rebellion, which is when a lot of Natchez people were sent to the Caribbean, that was about four years in the future. Lepage was, by his own account, close friends with the local Natchez ruling family, really good friends with the great son, super close to the Stung Serpent, they were all really tight. Although, there were a lot of tensions here between these two communities, so the ruling family, the Natchez family, may have had a different perspective on this relationship than Lepage did. Anyway, it came to be that Stong Serpent, the younger brother of the Great Son, was on his deathbed, and his family sent a delegation to the French fort where Lepage lived to inform the colonizer leadership that this was happening. Lepage rushed to Stong Serpent's side, just in time to see that he had died. The great son was really close to his little brother, and the two of them had made a pact that whichever one died first, the other would follow that one into death. So now the great son was suicidal, and that presented a big problem. Lepage said, quote, Among the Natchez, the death of any of their sons, as I have before observed, is a most fatal event, for it is sure to be attended with the destruction of a great number of people of both sexes. Early in the spring 1725, the stung serpent, who was the brother of the great son and my intimate friend, was seized with a mortal distemper, which filled the whole nation of the Natchez with the greatest consternation and terror, for the two brothers had mutually engaged to follow each other into the land of spirits, and if the great son should kill himself for the sake of his brother, very many people would likewise be put to death.
1: The priests and the great son's wives and other family members begged Lepage to help them persuade the great son not to take his own life. Of course that's what Lepage says, right?
0: Everybody just
1: is waiting for this white man to save the
0: day. Nothing problematic about that at all. He's the only one you'll listen to. I feel like I can see so many tropes here that are reproduced in, like, modern
1: literature and movies. Are you talking about a white savior trope? Yes, white savior trope. That's what's happening here. Yeah. So, uh, as I was saying, everyone was in terror. Because if two members of the ruling family died, that meant a huge mass sacrifice event, according to Lavage. And nobody wanted that to happen. Eventually, over a period of days, the great son was persuaded not to take his own life and there was much negotiation behind the scenes about who would have to die with Stung Serpent. Eventually, it was determined that only some of his closest kin would be sacrificed with him. His two wives, a number of high-ranking servants, and some old women, in quotation marks, because of course, Lepage, of course. Notably, a noblewoman with extensive skill as a doctor volunteered to die as well, since she had been close friends with Stung Serpent. Lepage particularly lamented her death because she had so many useful skills, and that's all a woman is good for, her useful skills or her baby-making. No, I'm not bitter. Not at all.
0: I feel like the, the way that the old women are presented here is a little bit of a Christian lens, you know, because it's like women are only valuable for their childbearing. As soon as they become older, they're witches. Can you confirm this, Jen? This is a sense that I get as a heathen myself.
1: I mean, I think you're not wrong. I think there is this sense that you have with older women in some Christian ideography or ideology who are like, well, it is my duty now to protect the next generation. I can't produce any more children. I don't have anything to give. I will instead lay down my life for other people. You see that particularly when you see widowed women who go in to convents or pass their childbearing years, like, there's this sense that, like, you know, women should be useful. And if you're not useful anymore, then you're just a burden. Like,
0: yeah, self-sacrifice is a quality that women should have in general.
1: Yeah, and I think that's so important. That's why Lapage is sincerely lamenting the death of this woman who actually is a healer, in his opinion, is more valuable because she has more useful skills.
0: Maybe these old women are also healers, but he just doesn't know them as well. So he's just like, well, some old women volunteered to go into the mound.
1: Sure, but I think the thing about the woman who's healer is she has a use for the men and the women and everyone in general. And we don't know if she's old or young. Whatever her position is, she is useful because she can benefit everyone. Therefore, her going into the mound is a real disappointment.
0: So Lepage described the funeral in detail, including several situations where people elevated their social rank from the lowest rank to the noble class by sacrificing their kin. In one example, parents strangled a child in honor of stung serpents, thus raising their family to the nobility. Those who had been chosen to die were accompanied to the execution site by eight each of their own relatives. According to custom, one of the relatives would kill each sacrifice, and the method was strangulation. But the sacrifice would be facing the other way and wouldn't know which one had done the deed, and all eight relatives of each victim would be made a noble and also be exempt from sacrifice themselves if any other sons
1: died. Yeah, and that's very much like a a firing squad, right? You don't know who's firing the bullet.
0: Yeah, but this is also a real incentive to volunteer a kin member for this sacrifice. And you can really see there are other theories about who these, these women were who went into these mass graves. But most of the scholarship now, I think, is saying that these were lower class women. They didn't have as good nutrition. They could be volunteered by family of the lower class as a way to elevate the whole family into the nobility and also protect them from having to do this in the future. Like this is like one sacrifice. The family could make to then be protected. We
1: absolutely saw this when we talked about ancient Rome and people selling their own children into slavery to avoid their deaths. Western cultures have done this too. It just looks a little different. I
0: mean, that's a little more, that's a little more capitalist, but I'm not saying that the ancient Romans were any better or even the Europeans were any better, honestly.
1: Yeah, and I I guess, like, it's not a perfect example, but I just feel like, you know, a lot of times, particularly because this is coming to us from Lepage, who has a real Christian lens, this is lionized by Christians and therefore these women who would have gone into the ground as sacrifices from a Christian lens would have been viewed as, like, essentially holy right they would have been doing the right thing for their family that's a very christian lens
0: there isn't really much here about how women who were sacrificed like lower class women who were sacrificed felt about it we know how their families felt about it there's a sense of fear here right this is how a family protects itself and also raises its own status we don't know how the girls felt like we don't know that they volunteered themselves maybe they were seen as holy and venerated maybe they were not i cannot say
1: it's tough to know. I mean, you know, I just think back to the Hunger Games. What would you do if it, was your, if it was you or your brother? Would you go into that mound or would you let your brother go? So Lepage
0: described the funeral in detail, including several situations where people elevated their social rank from the lowest rank to the noble class by sacrificing their kin. In one example, parents strangled a child in honor of stung serpent and thus, thus raising their family to the nobility. That is one situation where people elected their kin to die. So that they would be raised to the nobility and they would not have to sacrifice another family member in the future. There was another situation where somebody was sacrificed that was a little different. A prisoner was brought in who used to be married to a female son. When she died, he was supposed to go into the mound with her, but instead he fled, skipping out on his own sacrifice. But eventually he was caught again and appointed to die along with Stung Serpent. The man wept bitterly at his fate. But three elderly women related to him offered to be sacrificed in his place. So he was elevated to nobility and exempted from death. Lucky him. Wow. (laughs) That's another one that has a real callback to Cahokia, right? Because if you look at that high status birdman beaded burial, you're seeing these couples in the ground. How many of those were a situation where one person in the couple died and then the other was sacrificed? And it could be either gender could be the woman dying and the man sacrificed or it could be the other way around.
1: Yeah, and I also think like there's a real judgment call being made about this guy who didn't want to die with his wife and then these other women decided to sacrifice themselves for him. It kind of makes him out to be sort of cowardly cuz he didn't go into the ground with his wife who was like higher ranking in that culture.
0: She was a member of the ruling class basically. Yeah, she was like part of the royal family.
1: And he runs away and then people feel really bad for him. And they're like, oh, we're three older women. You're a younger guy. You can still have a life. We'll go into the ground for you. Like, that's making a real judgment about the value of the older women's lives and also the value of his life and elevating him to the nobility. Like, there's just a whole lot of Christian lens going on there.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Like, this is another area where I see a Christian lens. You know, like, this is a matrilineal society. They respected their women. It seems more, just based on the little I do
1: know, it seems more Christian lens here. Because they feel so bad for him and he still has value in society, even though he ran away from his responsibilities, which was to go into the ground with his wife, who was a higher ranking member of the nobility. Like that was his job and he shirked it. But we understand he was young and that wasn't really fair. So we'll take the burden for him. Jen's
0: getting real salty about this man who did not want to be sacrificed. No, I'm not projecting anything. <laughs> I'm not projecting anything. Good Lord, go into the mound. What are you doing? It's your responsibility. <laughs> That's what I would say as an old lady. I'm not going into the mound for my niece and nephews. No, go into your own mound. Sounds like 2022. <laughs> you want to give us how Lepage describes
1: the funeral, Jen? Have I ever wanted to give you anything more?
0: Would you like to describe how a white colonizer describes this funeral for us, please? Quote from the
1: page. (laughs) On the day of the internment, the wife of the deceased made a very moving speech to the French who were present, recommending her children to whom she also addressed herself, to their friendship and advising perpetual union between the two nations.
0: There's a definite like, don't piss off the French, you guys, they're right here element to this.
1: They're listening to everything we're doing and watching.
0: They're sitting right over
1: there. Be careful. So I'm going to continue this quote. Quote, Soon after, the master of the ceremonies appeared in a red feathered crown. Immediately after the stung serpent was brought out on his bed of state and was placed on a litter, which six of the guardians of the temple bore on their shoulders. The procession then began, the master of the ceremonies walking first, and after him, the oldest warrior, Next followed the corpse, after which came those who were to die at the interment. The whole procession went three times round the hut of the deceased. At every turn, the dead child was thrown by its parents before the bearers of the corpse, that they might walk over it, and when the corpse was placed in the temple, the victims were immediately strangled. The stung serpent and his two wives were buried in the same grave within the temple. The other victims were interred in different parts. And after the ceremony, they burnt, according to custom, the hut of the deceased.
0: Yeah, so the reason I included this passage, despite all the things wrong with it that I highlighted before, is that I think it really captures the terror that must have hit the city upon the death of a high-ranking person. This stuff happened at Cahokia. There's evidence in the ground that when a leader of the community died, Dozens of people, like 50 people, could be put to death as well. That could have included people of high rank. That could have included spouses of the deceased. And as we can see from this story, high-ranking men might be sacrificed when a wife died, as well as a wife when her husband died. In that beaded burial full of couples, we don't know which of each pair had died naturally and which was the sacrifice. We'll never know that. But this sheds some light on things about why... People would have participated in the sacrifice, why people would have tolerated their family members being sacrificed, that families would get something out of this. They'd get status and protection, theoretically. Like, this is one way it could have happened. So living in Cahokia was not all chunky and feasting and good times. Those intense religious festivals and feasts, with the smoking and the drinking and the transformative hallucinogenic shared experience, those experiences may have involved mass death on a grand scale all the horror that entails an intense relief for those who weren't chosen to follow the dead into the pit.
1: So Jenny, how did Cahokia end? Cahokia had thrived for apparently 300 years, but by around 1350 AD, the site was abandoned.
0: The thing that we see repeated is that there isn't any mythology in any indigenous culture about Cahokia. I have seen it suggested elsewhere that there's a reason for that. One of those reasons might be severing of connection of cultures with their more ancient history because of genocide that absolutely could be in play. But it could also be the people chose not to remember it because something bad happened there. Maybe Cahokia became something people didn't want to remember, didn't want to pass down to their kids. (laughs) No. (laughs) The human sacrifice element kind of suggests that. But beyond that... There is no way of knowing if that's true, but there is some evidence that bad things may have happened at Cahokia aside from
1: the human sacrifice. So one possibility of what might have happened here is mega floods. Cahokia was built on a floodplain, so it does make sense that flooding occurred. In 2015, researchers extracted deep sediment cores from the floodplain near the edges of Cahokia and noticed layers with a uniform texture that contained almost no pollen or signs of life they were practically sterile these layers turned out to be typical of floodwater sediment the researchers discovered that until approximately one thousand four hundred years ago the american bottom area was prone to frequent severe flooding with the mississippi river regularly rising about thirty three feet above its usual level by then around six hundred a d the flooding stopped And that's when the area started getting more populated. The woodland culture thrived, and eventually Cahokia was born. But around 1200 AD, that warmer, wetter climate, the one that had made it possible to grow corn, started to lead to flooding again. According to the research, there were two large flood events in Cahokia's history from around 1100 to 1200 AD and from around 1340 to 1460 AD these would have been high enough to flood houses.
0: Another possibility is fire. Another study, this one done by researchers with the Illinois State Archaeological Survey in the same year, 2015, discovered a large layer of burned charcoal and artifacts at the foundations of structures at Cahokia, the remnants of a massive fire that could have burned down as many as a hundred structures. This happened around 1150 AD. What's strange about this fire is that once it was burned, People did not rebuild. Fires at Cahokia were not unheard of. Structures here were built of wood and were flammable, but usually if a building burned down, people would rebuild on top of the ruins, not this time. This time, the ashes were simply left in piles and never rebuilt. This is like whole neighborhoods not rebuilt. And moreover, the people stopped building larger, more complex buildings like ceremonial lodges and homes for the elites altogether.
1: I know where this is going and I'm super excited about this cuz Eat the rich. (laughs) Eat the rich, Jen. That's where
0: this is going. So some archaeologists believe that while the the fire didn't immediately cause the city to be evacuated, it was a highly damaging event that sparked the beginning of the end for Cahokia.
1: So another theory that's been put forward is warfare. Overall, despite the Birdman symbolism that's come to be associated with warfare, Cahokia was not a warlike city. It did not have fortifications or other defenses. It didn't seem to conquer villages around it through violence. However, something changed in 1150. Around the same time that great fire happened. And these flooding was happening, right? We're building to it, Jen. So right around that time, sometime... Between 1100 and 1280, AD, a massive stockade was built around Monk's Mound, the Grand Plaza, and 17 other mounds in the area. The wall appears to have been ripped down and then rebuilt about three times over a period of two centuries. Each time it was rebuilt, it would have required about 15,000 to 20,000 logs made of oak and hickory, each a foot in diameter and about 20 feet tall.
0: The wall was clearly defensive in nature. It was about 2 miles long in total, with regularly spaced guard towers about 88 feet apart. The wall cut through several neighborhoods, and there's evidence the first one was thrown up quickly, as if the builders were trying to outrace an urgent threat. What prompted the building of this stockade? Was it a sudden onset of violence and upheaval, either from outside invaders or from within? Did the fire have anything to do with this? One clue might involve the very last burial in Mound 72, the last mass sacrifice event ever performed at Cahokia, with men, women, and children who had clearly been subject to extreme violence before being thrown into the pit. That happened around 1150 AD, at around the same time as the massive fire, and the same time the wall went up.
1: Were these events, the fire, the wall, and the last sacrifice connected in some way, Were these sacrifice victims rebels who fought against the ruling regimes and was death their punishment? If so, why were there so many non-combatants in the grave? Women and children? Perhaps their deaths were an instigating event for a rebellion. Or perhaps the Cahokian elites killed the families of rebels as retribution for their rebellion. We'll never know for sure. Eat the rich. Essentially, that's kind of how I feel. I feel like a lot of these people might have been working the land and they revolted by being like, stop taking all of the fruits of our labors.
0: Or maybe just we're really not down for the human sacrifice. We really, really are not. Yeah, I can't blame them on that one. So another possibility that has been put forward here for... The reason why Cahokia was depopulated is climate degradation. This theory goes that the people of Cahokia overused their resources, and that led to their downfall. Researchers point to the massive stockade and the enormous number of trees that would have been used each time the wall was rebuilt. Those were local trees. Trees and other plants can stabilize soil and prevent flooding, but if the Cahokians clear-cut the forest around their city, they were likely to experience more flood events. So this may be why there was flooding, because some kind of rebellion happened, things got burned to the ground, a bunch of people got ganked at the edge of a pit and then pushed in, and then they cut down a bunch of trees to build this stockade to prevent any kind of uprising, and then the floods came.
1: There is certain stuff within floodplains that is necessary to keep the water from going further inland and potentially destroying your city. We see this all the time now with climate change, and it's Highly possible they saw this then. It's also possible that this was just a, a phase in which the river was flooding higher than it was normally. Like, we don't know. And I think, like, what we're going to talk about now is that other researchers dispute this and for really good reason. We have to be careful here because this is something of a trope, right? Do you remember what Barry Strauss, our guy, said? It is tempting to try to sort of fit the narrative to the conclusion you want to draw, but that's not our job as historians. Jen and I are not historians. Our job is to
0: tell a story, but we'll tell you when what we're doing is essentially fan fiction or informed fan fiction or, you know, one direction we're taking it.
1: Like, there's a few times I'm not going to say the Pictish Beast, I'm wrong because I'm not, but I did put my tinfoil hat on a lot. St. Columba forever. Sexy Gandalf. <laughs>
0: Sexy Catholic Gandalf. St. <laughs>
1: <Saint Columba. laughs>
0: <laughs> Jen's a St. Columba (laughs) stan. I am not a St. Columba stan. Oh, you have St. Columba porn on your iPad. I know you do.
1: As I told you when we recorded this, my grandmother would be very disappointed. Have I told you that I used to have a book of the lives of the saints?
0: So anyway, can
1: we move on, please? (laughs) Please. Other researchers dispute this, and we have to be careful here, because this is something of a trope. Western archaeologists look at an indigenous culture that moved or changed or seemed to vanish from an area and theorize that they left because they ruined their environment. And there's a really good episode on the Fall of Civilizations podcast that Jenny is going to put in the show notes that has a discussion on how this has been erroneously used to explain Easter Island. So we're not saying that like this has never been true, but it's also projecting a kind of white Christian attitude that that God put all Earth's resources here for us so we get to squeeze every last drop out of the land that we can. And we can't assume that ancient indigenous people had that same exploitative relationship to the land. And sometimes modern researchers project their own issues and anxieties around climate change and ecological degradation on the past. So much of archaeology is subjective and subject to bias.
0: There's also the question about whether Cahokia was ever really abandoned at all, or for long. Because a new study, published in 2020, questions that too. So the dominant narrative is that the Cahokians simply vanished sometime around 1350 or 1400 AD. But researchers found that fairly soon after the Cahokians left, people moved back into the area. They discovered this by testing sediment cores for fecal stannols long-lasting molecules found in human feces that can give us a sure sign of how many people lived in the area. And is this not on the nose for the American bottom, Jen? I'm sorry. It just... (laughs) It's a poop study. It's a poop study in the American bottom.
1: (laughs) She can't help herself.
0: I just can't. I'm sorry. I have to point it out. So, the amount of fecal stannols in the cores suggested that by 1500 AD, so just like 100 to 150 years later, the population at Cahokia had recovered. Reaching a peak in 1650 AD, similar to its previous high population levels, the new inhabitants at Cahokia had adapted to climate change, which saw woodlands giving way to grasslands, they supplemented agriculture with bison hunting and were more mobile than the previous inhabitants. We don't know if these were the same people that had lived here before or if they were totally new people, but there were people here. The city continued to be in use. The idea that the people of Cahokia just mysteriously vanished kind of feeds into another European trope, and modern researchers are not immune to this. It's the myth of the vanishing Indian, which goes in the exact opposite direction as the one about Native people who destroy their
1: own environments. In this trope, the Native people are sometimes idealized, spiritually advanced stewards of the land who were too good, too perfect for the gritty, fast-paced modern world that Europeans ushered in and whose idealized way of life vanished to make way for the white people. My eyes are rolling. So this trope became popular during the 1800s when Native American populations had fallen due to centuries of genocide. The trope said that Native people were doomed to extinction because they were simply too perfect to live in the fallen world of the white people. Because that's the counter to manifest destiny, right? It's like if you're a white Christian person who believes it's your duty to like reign across this land, right? It's like, well, I realize as a Christian, I am an imperfect fallen person. And these people, these native people are too good for us. Therefore, they can't live in a world with fallen people.
0: But it's also our manifest destiny to, in a flawed fashion, rule over their land. So we kick them out and now we're all sad about
1: it performatively. Exactly, because that's how Christian genocide works. Anyway, historian Paul Jentz puts it this way, and he's quoted in an article by Sarah Fling on art in the White House.
0: Yeah, it turns out there's like a lot of problematic art in the White House. Unsurprisingly,
1: quote, White Americans felt the deaths of indigenous individuals could be mourned while simultaneously believing that quote, Indians must die away into the untrodden West as white civilization took its racially superior place on the continent. In reality, Native Americans were not banishing. And this is still a quote. They were being displaced by war and coercion and dispossessed of their ancestral lands through illegal seizures. And that's the end of quote.
0: And this may be just as true of Cahokia as anywhere else. Studies show that the population declined again by the 1700s. So By the time those first French explorers got there, there was only this group of people who were unrelated to those who had lived there before, and they were kind of just passing through, as far as I can tell. And that makes sense, because by then, Europeans had moved in, bringing warfare, large-scale epidemics, environmental degradation, forest population movement, and genocide. It's also important to remember that the moment Europeans set foot on the American continent, smallpox went ahead of them, ripping across the landscape faster than any expedition of white people pretending to discover land that had been known to indigenous people for millennia. Settlements in the Americas were entirely depopulated by smallpox and other diseases long before a white person ever stepped foot there. So yeah, like uncounted towns and villages all over the continent, Cahokia was a deserted ruin when the white people reached it. And it was probably not fire or flood or indigenous conflict or climate degradation that put an end to the city. What caused Cahokia's final
1: downfall may in fact
0: have been colonizers.
1: That's it for this week. So you can come and find us at ancienthistfan on Twitter and at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. You can leave us nice reviews.
0: If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so at our Patreon, patreon.com slash Fangirl, And we have some Patreon members to thank today, don't we, Jen? Apologies to anyone whose name we mispronounce. Thank you so much to Amanda Lewis. Chelsea Kolodziej. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I probably screwed that up. Jonathan, just Jonathan, and Georgia M. Thank you guys so much. You are the reason the podcast is still going.
1: And join us next week for whatever we're talking about next.